Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Let's check out our Bibles today and turn to uh, Psalm 8, if you would, Psalm 8. As we continue our little summer journey through the Psalms, we're supposed to start the book of Jonah uh, next Sunday, Uh, but I will admit I'm digging on these Psalms, so we'll see, maybe Psalm 9. Um, But uh, before we get into the word today, I did want to give a little bit of an announcement myself about uh, parenting. Parenting is one of the greatest responsibilities, one of the most difficult um, tasks that God can give a human being. And uh, in a couple of weekends, we're going to have what we're calling the Intentional Parenting Conference, uh, Friday night and Saturday, August 26th and 27th. And I'm really excited about this conference because um, what we've been able to do, a couple of people I really respect, Phil and Diane Comer, who have written this book, Raising Passionate Jesus Followers, and I'm not just holding this book this morning, and I have read this book, I think, three times at this point. I, I love the content within it. And what they do is they help you as a parent build your biblical grid and strategy for raising your children. And um, so I really would encourage every parent to be out on that weekend, Friday night, and also on Saturday uh, for this conference. They're not going to be here in person. They are in high demand. So what they've created is a video series that churches can basically uh, rent for themselves, and then we can provide different tracks. So there will be times where we're all together, and then times if you have older kids, you go to the older kid teaching. If you have younger children, you go to the younger Uh, childhood development kind of teaching uh, to help build your grid for raising your kids. So I hope and pray that you'll be able to be there. You can sign up for that at calvary.com. There will be childcare, and it's gonna be a fantastic time. So I hope that you can get out uh, for that. I'm really bummed, though. Christina and I are, it turns out, going to miss it. We'll actually be dropping our oldest off at school that uh, during those two days, and then we'll be back for church that Sunday. All right, today let's uh, pray, and then we're going to read our passage together. Lord, we come to you this morning. Thank you for all the parents that are here, Lord, represented at Calvary, and we pray that our parenting would not just be following the course of this world or our instincts or uh, what we grew up in or secular pop thought and psychology. We want, Lord, to look into your word and see what you might have to say to us, Lord, and build our parenting style based off of that. So Lord, help us, we pray, to do so. We also pray now this morning from your word that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, from this psalm that you'd encourage us, teach us, instruct us, shape us, Lord, with your word. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read the whole psalm together. This is another one of those psalms that has a superscription or a description of what uh, the kind of the background. It says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a Psalm of David. Verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. 
to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, verse five, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, verse nine, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think that the person that we just read about in this psalm the person singing this psalm, the person with these perspectives, saying these things about God and about himself, this is a person that is absolutely flourishing in life. Now, this psalm depicts what I'm calling a whole person. Uh, first of all, they are humble, yet very, very strong. They've received God's strength. Uh, they feel tiny, puny in comparison to the cosmos, yet they feel at the same time very loved and treasured by God. And with self-mastery or self-control, they serve and tend to the creation that God gave them dominion over. They have dominion. They are in charge. They are in control. Uh, if you saw this person today, you might describe them in modern terms. You might say things like, this person is on fire. <laughs> this person is on top of their game. This person is crushing it, or my kids might say they are slaying. <laughs> uh, this is a mother who is handling all of life's complexities beautifully with grace and dignity. This is the student who's navigating a massive course load and completing all their objectives. They're handling it. This is the small business owner who's serving their employees and their customers really well, creating a beautiful culture inside of their workplace. Uh, this is the retiree whose life has purpose and meaning and is perhaps making a greater impact on the next generation today than ever before in their lives. The person described here has dominion over their environment, which by the way is the very thing that God created human beings to have. Way back in Genesis chapter one, it tells us that God made man and woman to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This person, in other words, because they have dominion, they are living the whole human experience because God made humans to have this kind of dominion. And the bookends of this psalm, the first verse and the last verse, give us the secret as to how this person got this level of dominion in their lives, how this wholeness came to be. Uh, in the first verse and also in the last verse, David repeats himself, he says the same thing. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That, that's the secret. This man is so centered upon God. And I don't want you to let the way that he addresses God to 
pass you by quickly. He says, O Lord, our Lord. The first Lord that he speaks is the word Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. Uh, People after David's time had a hard time writing out the full name of God or saying the full name of God out loud. They thought they would be respectful of God by not writing it out or saying it in full, but David had no problem doing so. He knew God personally. It's like he's saying, I have a personal relationship with God. And then the second Lord, O Lord, our Lord, That Lord comes from the word Adonai, which means master or sovereign. It's like what David is saying is, I do know God personally. He is my father. We're very close, but at the same time, I've not taken him for granted. He is the master of my life. And whatever he asks of me, whatever he desires of me, whatever he tasks me with, I will be about those things. David is saying that he knew God personally, but respected God's position over his life. And notice how David rejoiced over something specific in God. In verse one and nine, these bookends of the song, he rejoiced over the majesty of God's name. Now, when David said, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He's not saying, God, I really like the name Yahweh. It's so creative, it just rolls off the tongue. It's a beautiful name. No, what he's saying is, God, your reputation, your character, you, who you've revealed yourself to be, I love that. I love not just you, but I love who you are. I love what you're about. He loved thinking and celebrating over who God is. So what we have here in this psalm, so to speak, is a man who is enraptured with God, a person who is enraptured with God. And I think by beginning and ending the psalm with the same exact line, what we're to learn is that the life detailed inside of the bookends of this psalm the life that is strong, the life that has meaning, the life that has dominion, it's a result of the worshiper's strong connection to God. I was once, uh, many years ago, at a Matt Redman worship concert. And in between songs, he was sharing with us kind of these little mini exhortations and teachings and I'll never forget one of them. I, I, I don't know, he's an English guy, so I, I don't know if when people speak, when, when people from the UK speak in, the, in that English accent, I, I don't know if what they're saying actually is profound or if it just sounds profound to me, but I'll never forget it. I thought, this is amazing right now. And what he talked about was how in worship, uh, we are aligning ourselves properly with God. And that when we are, as humans, properly aligned with our maker, that everything beautiful flows from that proper alignment. Dallas Willard once wrote of this. He said, the ideal of the spiritual life in the Christian understanding is one where all of the essential parts of the human self are effectively organized around God as they are restored and sustained by him. It is the human self fully integrated under God. I think that's what we're discovering here in Psalm 8. 
a person who is totally organized around God, totally integrated under God. All right, so if that's what we're looking at, what are the results of that kind of life? I mean, basically to mimic or copy or paraphrase or quote Jesus, what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? That kind of person, what are the results that will flow? The first result that I want you to see in this passage is strength. Strength comes from verse two. But I should say that when I say strength, I don't mean the brash self-confidence and self-praise that is popular in our modern time. You know, if if you're talking about how able you are, how successful you are, how well planned out you are, how powerful you are, all that you are going to accomplish. If you tell people all about your potential and your might and what you will do, to me that's not strength, that's a masked weakness. It's faux strength. The reality is that you're weak. But David said strength comes from a different place. Look at verse two. He said, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What does David mean when he makes that statement? Well, it seems that what he's saying, and that was right on cue, little baby. (laughs) Thank you, tech team. (laughs) Love that. The idea is that even babies and infants can receive God's strength to face the forces of opposition against God. He's saying even crawlers who can't stand physically because God is with them can stand. Even the weakest, in other words, is given strength. And that's the way of God. When we lower ourselves under him, when we celebrate and rejoice over him, when we know him personally, when he's our covenantal God, when he's our Yahweh, our Adonai, when we set him as the Lord of our lives and celebrate his nature, we receive his strength. In that place of weakness, we are made strong. It's the way of Jesus to do this, by the way, to infuse the weak with strength. When he came to earth, we can't help but notice that Though he loved and ministered to anyone and everyone who would come to him, he seems to have had a special place in his heart for those who were sick or outcast or tormented or had measures of shame for their lives. In one instance of this kind of care, Jesus in the temple precincts after healing a bunch of blind and disabled heard little children they begin crying out about him, Hosanna, son of David. It means save now, son of David. Save now, messianic figure and person. The religious leaders, when they heard that, they couldn't stand it because it meant that Jesus was allowing little kids to call him the Messiah. Little kids to say, you're the one that we're waiting for. And so they rebuked Jesus for allowing these kids to speak, but Jesus, in reply, he actually quoted verse two of Psalm eight. He said, have you never read, and I always love when Jesus says that to these religious leaders who had memorized the Bible. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. It was a 
fascinating quotation because they would have known that the rest of the quotation talked about these enemies of God. What Jesus is implying is that because the religious leaders couldn't lower themselves to, like a child, celebrate the God in their midst, they were actually making themselves opposed to God, enemies of God. But the little children, enamored and engrossed with Jesus, in their weakness, according to Jesus, they were made strong. This is the way of Christ. The weaker you are and the weaker you admit to being, the more strength you receive. Uh, My dad recently told me a story uh, about his high school wrestling career. He tells me he was pretty good. I have no way of verifying this. (laughs) But he said that there was one match in particular that he remembers where he was going up against the state champion in his weight class. Uh, His coach came up to him before the match and said, Bill, today you're gonna lose. (laughs) It wasn't exactly a vote of confidence, but what he said is, he said, but you can either lose really badly and cost our team a lot of points, or you can keep yourself from getting pinned and hurt our overall score less. So your job today is to go out there and just don't let him pin you. That was his whole goal. So he told me that he went out there in the first period and he kind of lay limp a little bit, kind of flopped around, and the guy was just having a hard time, you know, dealing with this kind of guy who was just like evading him all the time. And after the first period, he thought to himself, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And so then he said, I started thinking to myself, I'm gonna try a move. <laughs> he said, He tried a move, and within a millisecond, he was on his back, pinned, and the match was over. His opponent was waiting for him, just waiting for him to think, I'm strong. God does not bless human arrogance, thinking we are strong. But God instead blesses a childlike recognition and enunciation of his name. If you wanna flourish, if you wanna be a whole person, if you wanna enjoy God's original design for humanity, become as much like a baby or a child as you possibly can. And I, of course, don't mean become childish or infantile. You've got to continue to mature as a believer and as a person. But I mean that you should develop a childlike, even infant-like dependence upon the Lord. Think about a baby. A baby is dependent upon someone else for everything. They need their food, their clothing, their shelter, their warmth, their cleanliness. They need it to come from someone else. They are completely dependent on someone else to give those things to them. And when we see ourselves in this way, dependent on God for the needs of our body and soul, we're made strong. But if we don't see ourselves this way, if we just float through life as if we have no real need for him, We're in danger of removing ourselves from the place God's power flows. Okay, the second result of life organized around God, after strength, according to this passage, is that we find meaning in life. Find meaning in life. Look at verse three and four together with me. David said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man 
that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Now, it's not hard to imagine David doing this literal thing, looking up at the stars, thinking about God's majesty and thinking about how God loved him despite his smallness. Now, David was a shepherd in his younger years, taking care of his father's sheep. Uh, there would be times where for weeks or even months at a time, he would be far from home, far from Bethlehem, out in the wilderness, taking care of those sheep. There was no electricity, there were no city lights that would pollute the light in the nighttime, and so David had many moments of just gazing into the heavens. And the grandeur of everything that he saw gave him a sense of significance at first. Like, I'm so small, I'm so insignificant, but he was then filled with awe that God cared for him. Looking up at the stars, David remembered, as it says in verse four, that God was mindful of him and that God cared for him. Now, we might be jealous of David. We might think that he had a great advantage over us. You know, all that time in the natural world seems like he would just be bound to be constantly thinking about God. Oh, there's another beautiful night sky, and oh, that reminds me of my maker and who I am before him. But it wasn't that David's time in nature inevitably made him a worshiper. Sometimes people will say that of even these verses. You know, just look at nature. It inspires worship. But billions of people have looked at the very same stars that David looked at without submitting to God, without coming to these conclusions. In fact, many have looked at those very same stars and come to an opposite conclusion. I'm insignificant. None of this means anything. I am an accident. But because David already knew God, because he was in step and in relationship with God, because he was saying within his heart, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, he was reminded when he saw the stars of God's unbelievable care for him. And we today do have a very specific advantage over David in his estimation. You know, we might live in cities that sometimes obscure the glories of the natural world, but we are a more scientifically minded and advanced people than the people were during David's day. You know, for example, it was my birthday recently and on my birthday night, my little family of five, we got together and one of the things we were gonna do was uh, we were gonna watch a movie together. And uh, this meant that as the birthday boy, I got to pick whatever movie I wanted without any argument at all. A father cherishes these moments. So I picked a space-based sci-fi thriller, I picked the movie Interstellar. Super long, super confusing. I try to detail it for you, but I don't even know what it was about. <laughs> David could have never dreamed of such a story. He could have never dreamed of astronauts and black holes and wormholes and interstellar travel. No, we live in a different time. 
with greater scientific knowledge. We know the staggering distance and size of the sun and the moon and the stars and so much more. And with each successive discovery that we make, we seem to learn of our relative smallness in this ever-expanding universe. But for the person properly aligned with God, organized around God, this smallness merely reminds them of God's care for them. Some call this the paradox of man, that though we're like a speck of dust in the vastness of the universe, God has bestowed dignity and importance upon us. He cares for us. I was reading recently a fictional story, a novel by the author Wendell Berry called Jaber Crow, who is the main character. And in the story, Jaber describes the way his love interest looked at him when he first met her. He said, the brief laughing look that she had given me made me feel extraordinarily seen, as if after that I might be visible in the dark. To me, that's what this psalm describes. It's what David is going through. That even though we're but a dot in the expanse of God's creation, we are extraordinarily seen by God. You are extraordinarily seen by God, visible in the dark to his loving eyes. Though we're conscious of our relative insignificance and smallness, he's the one who diffuses us with significance and meaning. Now the final result of this life organized around God, after strength and meaning or strength and significance, is dominion. I've said that word a couple of times so far. It's in the passage. David said in verse five and six, he said, yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crown him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then he went on to describe things under humanity's feet, various animals from the land and the sea. All of this recalls and is lifted from the creation account of Genesis chapter one. I alluded to it earlier. On the sixth day of creation, God said that he made men and women in his image to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made us, in other words, to exert dominion over our surroundings, not as tyrants, but as servants. We're made to tend and cultivate the earth for our benefit, not as abusers, but as stewards. In a sense, you could say it like this, God put us in charge. We were meant to lead and cultivate the raw material of the earth that God gave us into a beautiful society. We, in other words, are God's special creation. It's a position, David said in verse five, that is one of glory and honor. We are gloried and honored people. But note how the psalm states it in verse five and six. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings while also being above the animal kingdom. They are, the psalm says, under our feet. 
And this life is one that is in proper alignment with God. That life gets this right. The, The life in proper alignment to God doesn't seek to advance itself above God, I'm in charge, but it doesn't seek to lower itself down to its animalistic passions. I do what I want to do. Instead, it is conscious of its place beneath heaven and above the rest of creation. I think the parable of the prodigal son illustrates this wonderfully. There in Luke 15, Jesus told the story of two sons, not just one. One, of course, took his inheritance early and he went away to a distant land and lived wildly. He became so broke and broken by life that he found himself lower than the very pigs that he was hired to feed. Remember the parable? He looked around at the food that he was feeding the pigs and longed in his heart to eat of that pig slop. So what he decided to do was return home. His hope was that maybe his dad would let him be a slave, a servant in the family household. Well, when the father saw him, he ran to receive him. He threw him a great feast. But when the older brother saw it, he was disgusted by what his dad had done and he challenged his father, almost in public, refusing to acknowledge the decision that his dad had made. Both sons were out of alignment with their true position. The first lowered himself to be like the animals The second exalted himself above the father. The first lived by his animalistic desires. The second thought himself like a God. But when we are in proper worship and love for God, we regain our proper position. We're not like the animals, nor are we more intelligent than God. We are in the middle. We are below him and above creation. So the man or woman who is properly aligned to God, who has organized themselves around God, they have everything that they need to be the whole person that's described here in this psalm, strong and meaningful and with dominion. Uh, They're living in their proper place, body and spirit alive and functioning before God. But at this point, as I wrap this up, some introspection is required. I mean, who among us is actually living this out? Who among us is all the time killing it, crushing it at the top of our game? Oh, we we have our moments, so often we fail. We go to the parenting conference, we make our plans, this is how I'm gonna do it, like Jesus would have me do it. (laughs) And then we get in the flesh, we snap, We cross the line. We tell ourselves, I'm gonna keep my bodily appetites in control. I'm gonna be obedient to the Lord. But then those appetites gain hold of us and we do shameful things. We we go to a Dave Ramsey class and we tell ourselves, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna make a budget. I'm gonna tell my money where to go. I'm in charge, not the money. And I'm gonna save and I'm not gonna spend frivolously and I'm gonna gonna be on it financially. And then 
issues come up, the credit card gets pulled out, and we begin to enter into debt once again. Over and over again, we lose our dominion. Over and over again, we're not what we're describing in this chapter. The book of Hebrews even points out this problem. It says in Hebrews 2, verse 7 and 8, quoting from this psalm, it says, you made him, speaking of God, God, you made us, you made humans for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's what you did for us, God. You put us in that place of dominion. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, God, left nothing outside his, humanity's, control. But then this little line at the end of verse eight. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That means right now, we really don't have dominion. And if you look around at humanity, you'd have to say that's true. We're not really in charge. We're cruising along and a virus comes and just rocks the whole world. We're off of our game in a moment. Though we were made for humble strength, purposeful significance, and gentle dominion, we don't have it. The creation wars against us. Other people make decisions or commit sins or drop responsibilities that hurt us. Our lives, our schedules, our circumstances overrun us. We often experience anything but dominion. Even our own bodies rebel against us. Though our psalm today might echo God's intention for humanity in Genesis chapter one, the astute among us are remembering, but there's a Genesis chapter three, where through our sin, we lost our dominion. None of us lives completely in the realm that this psalm portrays, except for Jesus. He even referred to himself with a title that's in this psalm in verse four. He called himself over and over again, the son of man. This is where the Hebrews passage really helps us. It goes on to say, but we see him, Jesus, for a little, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This means that Jesus came and he did what we could never do. He fulfilled humanity's destiny. He regained dominion. He came with dominion and regained it for us. And anyone who trusts in Jesus, trusts in what he did on the cross, can enter into his new version of humanity, which by the way, is a humanity where we can regain, even now today, we don't just have to wait for it, for when Christ returns, but we can right now today, progressively, bit by bit, glory to glory, little by little, regain the dominion that we lost through sin. We won't get it all back, but we can grow in it as we walk with Jesus. It's only through him that we can become whole, more human than ever before. In Jesus, our out-of-control species can regain the self-control and dominion that we were meant to have. 
Okay, I want to close by reading a little portion of a story to you. Let's have a little story time together. This comes from a children's book. You might have heard of it called The Little Prince. It's an old classic. Uh, the story is about a little boy, a little prince, who comes from a planet in outer space. He comes to the earth on his journeys, and he meets various animals and people. Uh, one of them is a fox. He's never seen a fox before, so he asks the fox about his life. The fox said this. He said, my life is monotonous. I hunt chickens, and men hunt me. All chickens are alike and all men are alike, so I get a little bored. But if you tame me, my life will be full of sunshine. I shall recognize the sound of a step different from all other steps. The other steps send me hurrying underground. Yours will call me out of my burrow like the sound of music. And look yonder, do you see the cornfields? I don't eat bread, wheat is of no use to me. Those cornfields don't remind me of anything, and I find that rather sad. But you have hair the color of gold. So it will be marvelous when you have tamed me. Wheat, which is also golden, will remind me of you. And I shall love the sound of the wind in the wheat. The fox then became silent and gazed for a long time at the little prince and then said, I beg of you, Tame me. To me, the fox is like us in our natural state, untamed and without purpose or passion or meaning in life. We need Jesus to tame us, to diffuse our lives with significance and meaning. We need him to become the one to love. We need him to enter into our lives and transform us from within so that we can have the wholeness and dominion for which we were designed. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.